what we're going to look at in Matthew 16. The same Peter who's saying that Jesus was rejected by men is the same Peter who we see in this story. Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter and the disciples are following Jesus and he's drawing crowds and he's healing people and he's doing miracles and they feel this momentum moving towards this point of this overthrow. And then Jesus is like, hey guys, come here. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and they're going to kill me. Peter's like, that's not the plan. Don't talk that way, Jesus. That is so foolish. I will never let that happen. And indeed, in the garden, when the people come to arrest Jesus, it's Peter with fisherman-like aim who cuts off the ear of an army guy. And yet here, Jesus rebukes Peter. He calls him Satan. And he says, the rebuke of Jesus is rooted in the fact that Peter's mind is set on the things of man and not the things of God. The things of man and the things of God. You see, depending on who we are in that equation, we see things differently. And we all know that because we in here are human. We're all of the nature of men. And we see things as external. We do. That's why we love movies where the maid girl takes off her glasses and puts on her slippers and becomes a princess. Or the weak boy finds his strength and he becomes a hero. You see, we love those movies because we know it's not normal. It's what makes them fantastic. It what, it's what makes them extraordinary, outside of what is ordinary. And that's why we're so stressed about our perception. That's why we care so deeply about how other people view us, how we're taken in, how we're accepted. Even if we say, we don't care what people say. Because those who say, I don't care what people say, want to be prized by thinking they're the person who thinks people don't care what people say. They're pandering to a different crowd but they're looking for acceptance and they care about their perception. And that's because things of man are seen. And we know that in our heart. We're all laboring for that acceptance and we channel it to this outward physical reality. And it consumes us. But the things of God are different. You see, what takes priority in this life isn't the plan of man, but the plan of God. And even more than the plan of God is the perception of God. And did you see those two truths that Peter just gave us? Look back at 1 Peter 1, 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So on one side of the truth, we have rejected by men. But on the other side of the truth, you have chosen and precious by God. The truth about Jesus is that the God of the universe chose him. And Jesus is to that divine father, to God, to this absolute, pure, wonderful being. He is wonderful. He is precious. He is chosen. He is beautiful. And Peter quotes the prophet Isaiah here, where Isaiah is, is, is speaking these things of God. And God is saying that I will be laying in Zion, which stood as this promised land, this place where God would rule and peace would reign. And there would be no enemies or no hurt, no slaughter. It would be complete 
peace. And he says, I am laying in Zion a cornerstone. My kingdom, my rules, your joy, your benefit, your welfare will be established on this. And he's saying, this cornerstone, I've chosen to be Jesus. You see, regardless of how rejected Jesus was by man, it was the weight of God's establishment of him, which makes him important. When God establishes something, it means something. And we all get this in our life. I'm a music novice. I could go, another, I could go the rest of my life and not hear music, and I'd be okay with it. I like music. I enjoy music. I want to grow in my appreciation of it, but it doesn't do it for me. And so if I were to listen to a song and I say, that's pretty good, it'd mean very little. If my wife, who's kind of a music snob, if she listens to a song and says it's good, it probably is better. If Thomas Terry, who was with us at retreat last week, this music producer who owns a record label, if he hears a song and he says it's good, that song probably has greater meaning. But even more than that, if the cultural divines which sit upon the mu- on top of the music industry, they say with, with reckless abandon that this song is excellent, doesn't it mean even more than me saying that? The status of those people choosing this song, declaring this song, enshrining this song, it means something more. And here, we see that more than simply declaring that Jesus is the cornerstone, God is making Jesus the cornerstone. He says, I am laying, I am working, I am establishing, I am creating, I am building. And cornerstones, uh, I mean, it's like two words put together. We could put in our mind cornerstone, but there were really important architectural things in the time of Jesus. And they didn't have pads of concrete that you would come and they'd take this goo and pour it and you'd, you'd do concrete things to it. I don't know. I'll look it up on Wikipedia later. Um, they don't have concrete where it just settles and becomes it. They had all these rocks. And so what they would do is they would cut and hewn the strongest, clearest piece of stone and they would lay it down on the square of the house. They would set the corner of the house with this. And on this cornerstone, they would begin to first build the lines of the foundation, which would be square. And then they would start the first walls on that. And if your cornerstone wasn't true, your walls would bend out, or they would bend in, or they would be crooked. And when you built your house, you'd have like a maze instead of four walls. It would keep going, and it would miss its joints. If the cornerstone wasn't true, your walls would have the potential of being like the walls at our church today, almost falling over and wavy. If you didn't have a true cornerstone that was weak and made out of impure stone, it would begin to crumble in the rain and the heat of the desert air. And here, so we can't understand really the cornerstone because none of us are architecture majors. None of us live in houses with cornerstones. But imagine the importance of a GPS if you get dropped in the middle of New York City. We need that to make sense of things. We need that to know where we're going. New Yorkers need that to know where they're going. And if that's removed, we're lost. We don't know what's going on. It's foreign to us. But with the presence of that GPS, with the presence of that cornerstone, everything else in our life begins to make sense. We have confidence, we have security, we have direction. And God had long promised to bring this cornerstone to his people. He was going to build a temple so big and so strong that it could house all of his people, that no enemy could approach it. And this temple was the temple that the Jews were waiting for. This was their hope. This is what they knew would bring that peace. And actually in 1967, it was reported that 500 rail cars were loaded up in Bedford, Indiana with some of the choicest stones. And thousands and thousands of tons 
a finely cut stone ready to be made the foundation of this long prophesied in Israel began its journey across the country. Now, due to political reasons, these stones never made it across the sea. But what this shows is that there's a massive misunderstanding that some people still have about the plans of God. To bring about God's plan, to bring about God's security, to bring about their confidence, to to bring about their hope, they wanted this physical temple. But look at what was said again in verse 6. For as it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. See, the cornerstone isn't a piece of marble. It's not a piece of bedrock. The cornerstone is a person. And while we in here, in modern America, none of us are probably longing for the presence of Jesus as this building. We don't look at Christianity and we say, if only we had this epic pillared temple, that would be everything. But how frequently do we view our own Christian walk thinking that our hope is in a religion framed by morality? Our hope is in our ability to love people better. Our hope is in our ability to be a good person. Our hope is in politics. Our hope is in keeping up a family heritage. Our hope is in having some sort of neat spiritual therapy which helps us process our woes. But look at Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5, where Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So I want us to see what just happened there. God, through the lens of history and eternity, He established something. The God of history, the author of all things, has chosen that eternity be placed on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The son of time will be found established on the platform of a Jewish carpenter because though rejected by men, he was chosen by God to be the center of God's glory. Jesus wasn't an afterthought invented by men as a religious figure, nor even a reaction to a God responding to a sinful people. The centrality of Jesus is something that God, before the world was even created, wanted to be established as the hope of his people. And verse 6 ends with this phrase, and whoever believes in him will never be put to shame. Albert Einstein, he's good at thinking. He was brilliant. And despite all of his brilliant true theories, theorem, is that plural of theories? Or theorem singular? Despite his many brilliant theorem, well, many, yeah, okay. Okay, you're done, Garrett. Um, (laughs) Go back to Bugland. Uh, Despite his brilliant theories, there's something called Einstein's universe. And what this is, is it's gotten this this tag of Einstein's universe. And Einstein had this theory that the universe was static. The galaxy itself was static. And it neither grew nor it contracted, but it remained at a current state. But but other scientists, and, and, and Einstein actually took this theory and he worked it into other things. Like his theory of relativity included this static universe. But other scientists came and began to look at this and be like, this guy's whack. That's what people said about Einstein. And, uh, and they, 
in, in Einstein's own lifetime, that theory was actually discredited. They found out that Einstein, the, the, the brilliant E equals MC squared man, was wrong. And it shamed him. He looked back on this theory and he says, that was the biggest blunder of my career. But can you imagine, like, fanboys aren't a new thing. Fanboys existed back then. You know there are Einstein fanboys who are like, if Einstein says it's true. Can you imagine how disheartened they would be to go out there in the public sphere and they're like, bro, the universe is static. And people are like, nah, man, it's not. And they put all their life on it and they, they push on it and they point to Einstein only to have him completely discredited for that theory. Can you imagine like that gut thing? Like, oh, I have to go see that person again. I have to show up to my early 1900s science museum and face these people. And it shamed him. You see, Peter was worried that because Jesus was rejected by men, that Peter would experience that same shame. He would be seen as unimportant. His hopes would be shown as a sham or flash in the pan. And we often worry about the same things in our own lives. What people say about your major, your clothes, your identity, it strikes fear into you as you face the possibility of being exposed as wrong, of being misguided, of being taken as a fool. But because Jesus is so established by God, the chief architect, the promise stands that should we put our hope in Jesus, we will never experience that shame. You will never have that moment of embarrassment, of humiliation. And this is our second point tonight, the truth about our response. Look at 1 Peter 1, 5 through 8, where it says this, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house, as a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So the truth is we have two responses to Jesus and you've already responded to him. There's not a point where we wait and we get to choose the color of our spiritual house. The moment you are born, you are responding to Jesus in either truth and receiving honor or in a disbelief and you're being caused to stumble. Those are the only two reactions you have to Jesus. You believe and you receive honor. You do not believe and you stumble. And we're in the age of planning. We're college students. We're college age. We're planning our lives, our studies, our relationships, our careers, our small finances if we have them. And we all make plans based off what we know to be true, right? Or at least what we hope to be true. We begin to plan things. We want that perfectly cut cornerstone in our life. It sets the edge, it frames. We know that in 30 years, we'll meet right back at the same point and life will be better because of it. And we sell all kinds of things in as this cornerstone. We look for all sorts of good physical things that God has given us and we begin to try to put them under our feet. We want something to stand on. We want something to support us. We want something we can trust in, something we can rely on, something we know is going to be there next month, next year, in 10 years, and in a decade. And we believe that if we had that one X, if we had item A, life could work out. 
We could really make it. We could do it. But as one poet says, you might have a picture of truth, but he framed it. You can disagree with history, but you can't change it. And despite what you feel or believe to be true, the truth of history is that Jesus defines our future. The cornerstone of this earth has already been sunk. Jesus defines your plan. Jesus defines your hope. And what we just read is that the hope and truth is true and hopeful regardless of whether you believe it or not. The stone the builders rejected said, this isn't good enough. God has made that stone the cornerstone. The opinion of man didn't change the truth or the value or the chosenness or the precious nature of God. It is true whether or not you believe it or not. And it is not Jesus' fault for being disbelieved in because he is not of a lesser value, but it is the fault of men who cannot process truth rightly. And here's the thing. If anyone were to think that a cornerstone was anything other than Jesus, it would have been Peter. Look back at Matthew 16, a passage just before the one we read. And in this, um, we're going to begin in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus himself, the man of God, the one who dies to reconcile all things to himself, he looks at Peter and he's like, Peter! Dude, rock man, crazy apostle who loves me. He says, on you, the scope of history is going to be changed. On this rock, heaven will be brought to earth and hell will be kicked to the curb. And you can imagine like Peter at this moment, like what was he thinking when he has all these 11 disciples behind him? He's like, did you hear that? That was me. I was the, I'm that Peter. I'm that Petros. I'm that rock. You're just Barnabas. <laughs> you see, he could have been so confident about this cornerstone language. But Peter knew who the true rock was. Because look at what happened right before what we just read. Look at this interaction of what Jesus says to Peter, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man, that's Jesus' favorite title, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? You see, what's happening here is Jesus is saying, it's not about their response. What's your response to me? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, it's on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah that the church will be built. You see, Peter's enhanced praise came only because he responded rightly to the person and work of Jesus. There was nothing innately wonderful about Peter, nothing super, nothing extraordinary, nothing super holy, but what made Peter special in this moment was he was one of the first living men on earth to respond rightly to Jesus and say, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the cornerstone. You see, we often think that we are imperishable. 
that we are capable of cutting out our own place, finding our own joy, or creating our own cornerstone, but we always fail. You see, in the late 1800s, Stanford University, which I think is one of the most beautiful campuses I have seen on college game day, um, and uh, they built this massive thing called the, I'm a, I'm a big college campus nerd, I love them. And so they built this thing called the Memorial Arch, which was this huge archway on campus. And on top of it was this, I'm using these adjectives rightly because it was a feat of engineering. They built this facade on top of this gate. You've seen, how many of you have seen the, the, so the Jefferson Gate at Yellowstone? So imagine that, Roosevelt Gate, some president. Uh, imagine it, oh yeah, because he's the one who signed the bill, history. Um, Imagine that like times four, just so much bigger. And on top is this facade, which depicts the progress of humanity. It stood for what man was capable of doing. And it was big, it was beautiful, and it was wonderful. But in 1906, an earthquake caused the arch to fall. And now as its architectural guts were all spilled all over the campus, they were able to look inside and see what was in it. They saw what was exposed, and one engineer looking at it said this. He said, the gate's massiveness was only superficial, built of unreinforced brick faced with stone. And you see, if a bunch of rocks in a pile cannot hold the depiction of humanity during the course of a natural earthquake, then the quest for true humanity in your life will certainly not be able to endure the trials that you will face. You will be exposed. If you are your own cornerstone, if something else is your cornerstone, you will be exposed to the hollowness which is inside of you. You will see, be, have shame as the nakedness on which you built your life is exposed. You will see the hollow core of your facade laid bare for all to see. And as we talk about this response to Jesus, it's not merely a mistake. You see, when Einstein's fanboys were wrong, they lived. But to be wrong on the person of Jesus is to endure the wrath of God for your sins in rejecting what is ultimately true and good. But there's a better cornerstone one which is not empty of substance nor hollow in hope, but one filled with the fullness of God himself, soft enough to deal with your frailty, but firm enough to absorb the wrath of God in your place. Look at me at the words of uh, the apostle John in John 11, and here Jesus is comforting a woman who had just lost her brother, this cataclysmic trial in life, and it is here where Jesus begins to remind her of the importance of a cornerstone. Jesus says this in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The same question Jesus asked Mary 2,000 years ago is the same question that you are being asked for the rest of your life. Do you believe this? Do you believe the beauty and wonder and honor of Jesus chosen as God's cornerstone? Or will you be one who foolishly chooses to create a false truth to death when the sum of truth died to bring you life? 
We will spend our whole life chasing foundations which don't matter, and Jesus is still true regardless of that. And even today, despite the faulty foundations you may have, despite the embarrassing things you may have built on, despite the shameful things you once put your hope in, the truth of Jesus still stands for you. And this is the last point I want to look at briefly, the truth about our posture. You see, we just read there's two types of people. There are those who respond in belief and those who respond in disbelief. There are those who accept and those who reject. There are those who receive glory and there are those who stumble in their own humiliation. And that truth for those who believe can often become truth that leads us to be conceited. I believe. I'm good. I got this. I know Jesus died for me. I'm okay. But look at what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. You see, knowledge puffs up, but love sends out. You see, in the cornerstone, we have knowledge, but we also have love. In seeing Jesus, we become so much more than this intellectual, spiritual, elitist class who knows what's going on while we watch the world go to hell in a handbasket. Because look at what happens in Peter, 1 Peter 1, verses 9 through 10, the verses Alan read at the beginning. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, Peter here is writing this letter to a group of churches which are facing persecution for being Christian. And Peter would have had every right and every hope based on his theology to say, you guys got it, sit back and watch because the shame is going to come on the haters. They're going to be exposed, they're going to be ridiculed, they're going to be mocked, they are not going to make it. You got it. Endure. That would have been true. I mentioned earlier feeling this vindication when I found out that my door handles were the right door handles and I rubbed it in my wife's face and I remember saying to myself in that moment in the kitchen, don't do this, don't do this. You see, I was right, I knew the truth but I wanted to use that truth as an offense to my wife. I wanted to use it to shame her so that she would feel the shame that I should have felt. So that she would feel the embarrassment that I would have had if I were her. So that she could see that I was approved, that I was justified, that I was pardoned, that she was in the wrong, that she never should have doubted me. But if Jesus is our vindication, if Jesus is our true truth, it is only by Jesus we see in verse six or verse five that we're able to become a priesthood offering sacrifices acceptable to God. If the only way we have access to God, if the only way we are made acceptable to God is through Jesus Christ, then we don't lord our knowledge over people. We aim to serve them with the message of love. We don't praise truth believed for our own pretentious benefit. Instead, we proclaim truth made acceptable to Jesus who saved us. Though we believe a word, 
those who reject the word. This is the word, the good news. They have preached to you a word. Though we believe a written, spoken, believable, understandable word, we are not saved by knowledge. We are saved by love written down for the world to see on the tapestry of history, Christ exalted and risen for those who were lost. You see, it's only because Jesus was pierced on the cross that he could ever be cut as the choice cornerstone. It's only because he is our cornerstone that we have something to stand on. It's only because he was rejected that we ever have grounds for acceptance. It's only because he was accepted that we can avoid the humiliation that should have been ours. You see, we avoid stumbling over Jesus, not because we have legs to leap, but because God in his mercy gave us eyes to see. And that is the marvelous light of Jesus Christ. It's only because Christ is the substance of our faith that he can become the subject of our hope. You stand today faced with the truth of Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that the world needs to see. That's the hope that Peter says has been made innate in your salvation. You are a people of God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see, this hope is what makes us preoccupied with the offensive love of God because we are changed. We cannot help but proclaim. We cannot help but exclaim. We cannot help but worship the excellencies and beauties of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here's where this meets our life because it's hard, because it's difficult, because it's awkward because it's countercultural, but we care not if we are rejected because we are given life through the rejection of Jesus. We care not if we are made outcasts because it was through Jesus being murdered outside the gates that he has become the living stone on which all of history turns. You see, the things of man says if we are opposed by man, we will perish. But the things of God says better to be chosen by God and a witness to man. And we all have access to that light. You have access to that joy. You have access to that peace. You have access to that security because we have been made to know the Jesus who is precious above all things. We have seen his excellencies. We have tasted his goodness. We have felt his light. So what do we do with this truth? Proverbs 16, 24 says, there is a way which seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Each and every person in here today, each and every person out there tonight, they all have a way that seems right to them. You're all acting on truth. How confident are you? How secure your cornerstone. How emphatic will you be in standing and screaming and proclaiming? How fixed is your hope? Because I stand here in space and time telling you that Jesus will never fail, but you don't have to believe me. You have to believe God. You have to believe the track record of Christian faith enduring swords and famine and hardships and persecutions and calamities, knowing that their kingdom is not a physical kingdom, knowing that they are a spiritual priesthood built up to offer spiritual sacrifices. You see, Jesus came to shine light on your truth. 
so that you might see rightly and believe accordingly that the sum of your life, that every aspect of your hope is found on the foundation of Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose again so that you might have life and life abundantly. My question to those who have never considered this is, will you believe it? Because one day Jesus will call us to give an account for our truth and like my son, you might be found completely in the wrong despite how passionately or obstinately or comprehensively you claim to understand what you know to be true because what is true is God and his truth of the gospel. And for those of you who claim to believe it in knowledge, do you believe it in action? Is your life consumed and identified by the God who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light? Where in your life today have you proclaimed the excellencies of him who has done that? Where in your life this week have you lived as a holy priesthood? Where have you understood that you are a royal priesthood? That you are identified with the living and loving Jesus Christ? And where has that led you to have life and joy? To believe truth, to know truth, is to act on truth. Thanks be to God, for the sum of his word is truth, and every one of his righteous rules endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray tonight that the sum of this word is truth, that the sum of the emotion and the description and the language used in Scripture strikes our quest for what is real. Lord, I pray that you establish us firmly on the cornerstone of Jesus. I pray that you fix us on that which has been fixed since before the foundations of the world so that we might stand and endure despite what rejection we might know from men. That though we might face hardships, though we might face cutting words, though we might face cold opposition, we are standing on the one who is chosen, the one who is choice, the one who is precious, and in that we know we will not be put to shame. Lord, I pray the dangerous prayer that you would shame our fears. In my own heart, in their own hearts, Lord, that you would, you would grab the hopes that we have, the hopes that compel us, the hopes that constrain us, the hopes that captivate us, the hopes that drive our biggest fears, and that you would, before our eyes, begin to show their frailty and the cracks in their foundation, not so that we would experience the shame of it, but that we might then look at Jesus and know his hope and know his confidence and know his security and know that one day we will stand before God and we will point not to ourselves or to our clothes or to our perception, but we will point to the one who died and now he lives, to the one who is chosen and precious, and we will not be put to shame. Lord, captivate us with this truth. For they stumble because they disobeyed as they were destined to do. But you are a holy race, a chosen priesthood, a people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Amen.